I'm so excited to get to teach this morning. I don't remember the last time I was in church and someone taught from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I have brought a facsimile copy of the papyrus pages of the papyrus of Anat from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I will be putting it on a table for you to look at afterwards if you want to. Please, jelly donuts do not go well with the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Even the colors that were used were important. So you don't want to go taking happy and put jelly on him unless it's blue because he's supposed to be blue he's the god of the nile so let me tell you why we're talking about that at champion forest baptist church on a sunday morning in our life group where we do bible study it's not because the egyptian book of the dead is part of the bible Unless you want to say, well, is it something that some people in the Bible knew about? If that's the question, the answer is yes. So we can study it to help us have some context for understanding some other parts of the Bible. Let me tell you how we got here. A series, Is God Guilty of Fraud?, where I've examined during this series different issues of God's a God of love or a God of war, God's a God of justice or a God of mercy. But one of the final issues, in fact, the final issue I wanted to cover in this series is the role of science and faith. Is God a God who calls us to faith or calls us to science? Which I have said he's one who calls us to both. Because science is all part of a worldview that we in faith believe in. So I think our final class on this section will come next week when we'll look at cloning, we'll look at recombinant DNA, we'll, we'll look at, at different ethical issues that arise within the framework of science. But today I want to put the final class in order on the issue of creation or evolution because a lot of people run and em away from science and embrace faith because they fear to do otherwise would reject the Bible as authoritative. They fear that if they don't run from science and simply embrace faith and fight against science, then, then they, they may be... Uh, uh, um, less devoted in their faith to believing the scriptures. I do not believe that is true. I do not believe that creation or evolution was ever the issue in Genesis chapter 1. It wasn't in the mind of Moses when he got the, 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 the dispensation from God on Sinai, the revelation from God on Sinai. That becomes our books of Moses. He was not thinking, well, there's going to be this guy named Darwin in about 3,000 years. And we need to be sure and write against him. So the Scopes monkey trial will turn out right. That wasn't it. Now the reason I say this is not the issue in Genesis 1 is because I am a biblical literalist in the sense that I believe the Bible is literally a revelation from God. And I believe that we should read it and understand it for the way God meant for us to. And when we do, we can go to the bank on it. But that means we've got to read it in context. And we've got to read it in context, not only in the language or in the sentence or in the paragraph, but we've got to read it in context of the culture in which it came. And so we try to do that with the Genesis 1 story. It's the conservative thing to do. 
it's the I believe in the Bible as God's revelation. And he gave it to Moses at a time and a place in history. And so the right way to read it, I believe, is a three-step process for today. We're going to do three things today. First, we're going to learn the historical context of Moses receiving this revelation from God. And then second, we're going to consider what Moses had in his brain at the time he considered this and got this message. Which is also some of what the Israelites would have been thinking and knowing as well. And then we will learn the points of what God revealed to Moses in Genesis 1. So let's start with the historical context. That means we've all got to run over to the airport, we've all got to get on an airplane, and we've all got to fly all the way across the Atlantic, go through the Straits of Gibraltar, I guess. Actually, if you really were flying that way, you'd kind of fly up and over uh, more so because it's more direct, but hey... Who's counting miles? Um, but once you get there, it helps us to understand where we are if we look at it from a satellite view. Now in this satellite map that I've put up here, this area right here in the middle, there we go, that is Israel today. It was the promised land at the time of Moses. That's where it is. Look at it. Just this, this is a satellite view, so it gives you a feel. Look at it for a moment. See all that green down there to the left? That's the Nile River and the Nile Delta. It is green because things grow. They grow because there is water. You look to the left of it, it's desert. You look to the right of it, it's desert and wilderness. I, you, you don't get much unless you just follow the coastline. Now what we've looked at for the last couple of weeks is what the teachings about creation were in Mesopotamia. That's the, the, the culture of Sumar. That's the culture that, that we consider Akkadian culture. That's, that's the Babylonian culture. That's the, the, the Assyrians. We're in between the Sumerians and, and the um, Babylonians. But we've talked about that for two weeks here, that was the Enuma Elish, uh, the Atrahasis. There are a number of myths that come out of those cultures that the people were aware of. But down here is Egypt. Now if you look at this, you'll see the bridge between Egypt and Mesopotamia, those two huge cultures that produce those huge kingdoms. Where's the bridge? The promised land, right there. And there are times where Egypt controlled the promised land. And there are times where the, the uh, Assyrians or, or the Babylonians controlled the promised land. And so we've got, and then there are times God had Israel in possession of its lands when it was walking holy. But even if Israel's in a time of peace, they receive the culture from Egypt and they receive the culture from Mesopotamia because the road that everybody traded on, traveled on, and went on went right through Egypt. I mean, went right through the promised land. So they're getting this exposure all the time. Add to it the fact that Abraham's originally from Ur, I looked for a good picture of Abraham and I found him on an Israeli stamp. And I thought, since I'm moving him all over the place, let's put him on a stamp. So excuse the stamp there of Abraham. But Abraham moves up to Haran because God tells him to. Abram is from Ur, one of the key cities in Sumer. One of the key cities that had all of these myths written down. And he goes up to Haran, and then he comes down to the promised land, and he settles. And it's not just him. It's all of his kinfolk, too. He takes a bunch of his kin. And so they go down there, and they settle down there. 
Now, here's the deal. You might say, well, I'm sure, though, he went to church every Sunday and he was a devout believer in Yahweh. He's learning. But don't think for a minute that they're not without their culture. That he's immune to that. He has a kid, a boy named Isaac. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, yeah, Jacob and Esau. Jacob goes off and marries one of the offsprings of Abram's relatives, Laban's daughter. He marries actually two of them, Leah and Rachel. And when he's leaving his father-in-law to head home, do you know what happens? His wife, Rachel, steals her father's household gods. I mean, this isn't, gee, they were at church every Sunday and, and Adam had passed on, you know, through all of his descendants uh, and had gone through Noah and they all had this great understanding of what had happened on the six days of creation. Now, they're not, they're not following Yahweh only. They're learning. God's progressively revealing who he is. But Rachel's stealing her household gods. Abram and, and, and uh, his offspring, they go down to Egypt a lot when there's a famine. So they're frequently in Egypt as well. Ultimately, they go to Egypt and live there for 400 years. This is the year 2019. 400 years ago was 16. 19. 1619. That's older than Lubbock, Texas. That's older than the United States of America. Sixteen nineteen. We won't even become a country for a hundred and sixty years. They lived there a long time. So what we've got to do is get into Moses' era. We've got to get that clock and we've got to run it. For 400 years, Abraham, to get to Moses. 400 years. 400 years. That's going to take a little too long. We're not going to wait. Uh, 400 years. 400 years. How, how long have we been going so far, Miss Carolyn? Let's just, let's just fast forward. And let's get to the time of Moses. 400 years they've been there. I'm a late Exodus guy. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. You can be wrong. The, but you might be right and I might be wrong. But I'm not. And, uh, but I could be. Because I'm a late Exodus guy, if you want, you get on the internet our great internet team, our great camera and, and sound booth and all those people work so hard so that you can read or, or, or watch the lessons back then. But 13th century B.C. is what we're talking. So at 13th century B.C., that fella on the far left in my picture, right over there, is the Pharaoh for the Exodus. Ramesses II. So Ramesses II is Pharaoh. Now, Moses had grown up in Pharaoh's house. Ramesses II's father, by the way, was not Ramesses I. They would like hopscotch. His father was Seti I, S-E-T-I, Seti I. But Moses grows up. So what I want us to do, now that we know historically back where we are, let's go to my second point. Let's go to that point where we talk about what Moses knew. Now Moses, I don't, by the way, I tried to get a really good picture from like 1250, 1270 BC, uh, but they didn't have any. So here's a reconstruction of a throne room. Do you realize when Stephen is talking about this in the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also knowing Jewish teaching and tradition, Stephen explained to those listening that Moses 
was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses went to wisdom school in Egypt. Moses knew everything I'm about to teach you. Moses knew the Egyptian book of the dead. He knew that it was centuries old at the time. He knew that there was still being, he knew that, that Egyptian, um, Egyptian religion is a, a, a fascinating thing to study because it wasn't ever, we, we're real truth people, like is the truth A or B? They were kind of like, it can be A, it can be B, it can be C, it can be D, it can be E. And oh, we were wrong on that. Well, we'll still believe it anyway, but we'll just add the new thing that that everybody thinks is right. And so over the the thousand plus years, it just accumulates all of this syncretism, is what it's called. But Moses would have been instructed in the book of the dead. The book of the dead is what contained many of the teachings relevant to to what happens in this life when you die. And it has a lot of the wisdom of the ages. This is a papyrus of the Annie Book of the Dead. I've chosen that papyrus for a number of reasons. Notably, it was made while Moses was alive. I've got a facsimile copy from the British Museum that your local theological library has. And when class is over, we'll put it on this table down here and let you look at it. This is the thing you don't want to put jelly donuts on. But I'm telling you, the book of the dead is something Moses would have known. Moses would have studied Moses, when he learns the wisdom of the Egyptians, he would have learned that they have thousands of gods. Nobody knows how many. Sometimes you argue, is that a goddess or a demon? <laughs> a lot of marriages in that same situation. Goddess or a demon? No, I'm joking. Um, and certainly not mine. Um, this is thousands of deities. Now, we already talked in brief overview about one general concept of, of, of Egypt's view of the cosmos. And I put this up there. It's one that showed the earth god Geb. He's the fella down lying at the bottom. And he's, you see he's got his knee up, his arms up. That's because the terrain's not always flat. So that's the earth god Geb. And then you can see over the top the sky god Nut. Uh, <laughs> she, was, she was a nut. And uh, a real nut. And, and, and she was originally, by the way, infertile. But Isis comes in and, and helps with that process. So she, the sky god Nut, and the earth god Geb get together and start having kids. And they produce more gods. Here's the sun god, Ra, in his boat. He's the guy with the falcon head and the sun on the top of his head. Holding the symbol of life on his knees or his hands. With a goddess in front of him. And he's in the waters of the heavens up above the sky god, Nut. You can see uh, uh, that. He, you can see the sun going down at the other end. By the way. The Egyptians thought that this solid firmament over the sky is probably, some of them thought it was flat, but most of them thought it had kind of a concave shape because they're doing this by observation and they knew the sun is bigger and the moon is bigger when it's on the horizon than when it's up in the sky. And they didn't know that's just the way light is refracting off of the, the atmosphere. They thought it must be closer so the sky must ooch in, that solid firmament must ooch in down at the sides. And so you've got Nut here and she's like doing this yoga pose. Because the sky gets closer as it goes around. 
The air god Shu is helping hold her up. By the way, that's one of her offspring. And so you've got that going on in here. What else you've got? You've got, by the way, that painting came from a tomb. But I want to tell you that the, the, the tombs are one of the sources where you get a lot of this information in the hieroglyphs. This is a picture from one of the tombs of Seti the first from his temple at Abydos. Seti the first was the father of Ramesses the second. This is someone Moses would have known. Seti the first, there he is, but let me give you another picture. See, the pharaohs were considered to be gods. They were incarnations of the offspring of Isis, the woman who helped the goddess Nut get fertile. So you've got here Seti the first. Here's another picture. Let me, there we go. There he is sitting in the lap of Isis, the goddess. You can find other pictures where the goddess Isis is nursing. Pharaoh's nursing. God's nursing. You know, she's fertility. She's life. She's all of these wonderful things. But Pharaoh is considered her son. He's an incarnation of her son and he is a god himself. He has been made in the image of his goddess mother and godfather not Marlon Brando he is he is made in the image of god and is a god and this is wisdom that Moses grows up learning and all of Israel that's in Egypt hears it all the time that's why they are slaves to the pharaoh he is the God. From an Israelite perspective, they were slaves. From Pharaoh's perspective, everybody was a slave, except the priests. But even they served the gods. So, if you think about it, this is why when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people go, you have this exchange. Look at it here. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, the God. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, Pharaoh doesn't mind other gods. There's lots of gods, but Pharaoh's a god. He knows there are thousands of them. I'm sure he hadn't memorized them all. But Pharaoh's reply is, who's this Yahweh fella that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who says he's a bigger God than I am? I don't know this Yahweh guy. I'm not going to let him go. You think, but Yahweh's a God. Well, I am too, Pharaoh's thinking. I'm not letting this guy go. I'm not letting these people go. I've never even heard of this. Yahweh, God of the burning bush. I mean, like, no. See, Pharaoh thinks he's a god. They got gods all over the place. Here's a picture. This is from the Book of the Dead Papyrus. That's Hopi. He's the Nile god. He's manifested within the Nile itself and the Nile waters. There's, there's um, um, hymns that were written to the Nile as a god. In fact, there's a very famous one called by us, Hymn to the Nile. Let me give you some of it, get you flavored for how they saw this. Hail to thee, O Nile. Who manifesteth thyself over this land and comest to give life to Egypt. Establisher of justice, mankind desires thee. 
supplicating thee to answer their prayers. Thou answerest them by the inundation. That's every September the Nile would flood. Actually started a little before September, but that was the general peak month. And that flooding of the Nile is what produced fertile fields and all these other things. So, oh, inundation of the Nile, offerings are made unto thee. They would sacrifice to the Nile, God. Oxen are burned to thee. Great festivals are instituted for thee. Birds are sacrificed to thee. So the Nile is a god. Moses has come to Pharaoh who's a god. Moses says the God of Israel is out in the wilderness and they, he wants you to let them go so that they can go have a feast to him. You know, you feast the Nile God every year for the flood. They're a feast for Pharaoh, feast for all these other gods. Pharaoh's like, I've never even heard of this guy. No, not letting him go. He's not, not trumping me. Get out of here, Moses. You know better. You grew up in this palace. You know which gods are which. You just came back with this new idea after you've been gone forever because you killed a guy. You've been an outlaw on the run. And now all of a sudden you're coming back saying, oh gee, I want to take people with me because you didn't get to be Pharaoh. See, when Moses comes back and Pharaoh won't let the people go, Moses shows who Yahweh is. First thing Yahweh does is Yahweh eats up the serpent gods. Moses' staff becomes a serpent. Oh, they got people who can do that too. Moses' serpent eats. Moses beats the Nile god. Sticks his stick in the Nile and the Nile turns to blood. Yahweh is stronger than all of the gods. You remember the final plague? Death of the firstborn. Well, that's important. This uh, ibis head guy. That's an ibis head. That's the head of an ibis. An ibis. We have kind of ibises around here. You'll see them in ponds. Um, they've got goofy looking beaks and they eat fish. But the ibis head is associated with Thoth. Now Thoth is the god of wisdom. He's the god of writing. Moses learns how to write. The writing system itself was something devised by Thoth. Thoth is the author of writing. Thoth also kept track of time. He kept track of the time that was allotted for a human life. Time allotted for the life of a god. This is wisdom that Moses would have. Thoth, the time god. If we were to go inside Pharaoh's uh, temple here, Ramesses II that he built, the Pharaoh contemporary to Moses, if you go inside, you can see right there in one of the pillars, that's Thoth, Olibus head as we call him back in Lubbock. If you go to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, what you see here, hmm, all right, we're going to see if we can do it this way. Can we go to the Elmo, please? So I have the sheet out of there of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Let's, let's look at some stuff we've got here. Um, so this is the dead fella. This is kind of his little uh, essence. That's, uh, uh, he's dead and he's gone to the underworld. Because when you're dead, you go to the underworld to decide whether or not you're going to live. Okay. And so this is his heart. Can you see that? Blow it up a little bit here. That's his heart. That's his aorta. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, they've cut his heart out. And his heart is being put on the ma'at. The ma'at is this 
Let me back it up some. This uh, scale here. See the scale? His heart's on one side of the scale. The other side of the scale is the feather of justice. And the heart has to weigh justly. If the heart weighs justly, by the way, this right here, this is Anubis. Anubis, uh, um, also known to me as Doghead. Anubis, although I believe technically it's an Egyptian or an African golden wolf, but he looks Doghead to me. Um, Anubis is the god of death. So this fellow's died, they've got his mummy, they've taken his heart out, his heart's being weighed, the god of death is there watching it, looking at it on the scale of Ma'at. Now, over here, if we can see how to best do this without tearing it, over here, uh-huh, see that fellow right there? That's Oliva's head. He's keeping the, he's writing down the results of the scale. He's writing down whether or not the, the person's life was lived adequately. If it was, the person gets to journey on. If it wasn't, see this right here? That's Amit ready to devour the heart and being if the weight isn't right. That's the head of a crocodile on the body of a leopard with the back of a hippo. This is not a tame beast. You, you do not win with an alligator, a leopard, or a hippo. Big human eaters in Egypt. And that's what happens. They get eaten. By the way, all of this is happening under the oversight of, look at this, that's Ra the sun god up there at the top. Old falcon with the sun on top of his head. Um, so you've got all of these pictures, you've got all of this stuff going on. This is what Moses gets taught. If we go back to the PowerPoint. So in comes Moses. And God says through Moses that I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night and I'm going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. You don't know me, Pharaoh? You're about to learn. I'm going to execute judgment on all of the gods, including Thoth, Mr. Record Keeper. Mr. I decide when people die and when they don't, and I number their days. No, Yahweh does. I am Yahweh. And that's what happens. As Isaiah looked back later and, and still looked forward, he said, the Lord's riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Now, this is what's in Moses' mind. He's been taught this for decades, but he also has been taught by the Lord in Sinai. God didn't just take Moses the day he shows up on the Mount Sinai and say, hey, bud, head on back down there, get my people out. Moses has a lot to unlearn, a lot to adjust on. God's timing is God's timing. So with that in mind of what Moses knew, now let's look at the points of Mount Sinai. I use as a picture St. Catherine's Monastery because, uh, uh, whoops, there it is. St. Catherine's Monastery, because we have a, a friend who is the librarian at the Greek monastery there. But that monastery, the chapel there was built by Constantine's mother, um, Helen, in the early 300s AD. So it didn't have like a sign that says, this is Mount Sinai, here's where Moses went up. It, it, we don't know for certain that is Mount Sinai. 
But it, it's been assumed to be Mount Sinai for a few thousand years at least. Now Moses goes up on the mountain and receives divine revelation from God. He's up there not for a day, not for two days, not for a week, not for two weeks. He's up there for nigh a month. And as God's giving Moses the Torah and the law, God's concern was not rectifying Israel's science view of the dynamics of how this world's put together. God's concern was much more important. He wanted to fix immediately Israel's understanding of who God was. What it meant to be his chosen people. What their responsibilities were as his chosen people. How they were made, why they were made. In terms of what it meant for them in their lives. So, I mean, God's not concerned with explaining to them that the, they thought the sun would go into a gate at night. The Egyptian thought was, there were several different stories. Like I say, they, they, they had all sorts of beliefs over the thousand plus years. Um, one belief would be that uh, Nut, the, the firmament god, goddess, she was always uh, facing west. So at the end, the, the gate the sun would go in, for some it would just go through a gate like this on the barge with, with the stars and would loop back around. But others had her swallow the sun each night and then give birth to it because the birthing canal was at the other end each morning. And that's how they knew she was facing west because the sun comes out of the birthing canal in the east. God's, God's not worried about explaining to them that the sun is actually not moving, that it's the earth that's moving. That's not God's concern. God's concern is they've got the sun tied to a godhead on a boat getting swallowed by another god who's going to then eject it the next morning and you better keep the gods happy or the sun may not come out by the way what was another one of the plagues the sky darkens the sun darkens when it's not supposed to Yahweh's stronger than Ra the sun god didn't have to wait for him to be gobbled up that night by his goddess nut only to be birthed again the next morning. No, middle of the day, sky goes dark. Now, some of those, in fact, almost all of those events can occur in some way in Egypt up till the death. And that's why Pharaoh would turn back and just say, well, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes the Nile does turn kind of reddish. He didn't understand the, the growth, of the bacterial growth that caused it, but that can happen at times. There can be eclipses. There can be things. And so, so that's why Pharaoh always relents. But there was no relenting after death of the firstborn. That never happens. I'll go a step further and say the other things didn't happen in Egypt with prediction. Moses is every time doing it. This was the hand of God. It's just one that Pharaoh could write off. Confirmation bias if you study it. So God used the ancient cosmology. He wasn't focused on trying to explain how this world came to be. He was focused on a, an entirely different set of messages. And with Egypt, just as much as with Mesopotamian views of this world, God has something to say. One God who created nature. Gods are not in nature. God formed. God filled. The sun is not something that's given birth by the goddess nut every morning. The sun is something God made to rule over the, the, the day. The moon and the stars at night. So that by them we can keep time and seasons. They're, they're not gods at all. They're part of what God has made. 
You don't, you don't sit there and scroll through the book of the dead trying to figure out if, if you've got this God who's over here and, and who's uh, going to uh, keep track of time and you've got another God over here who's going to keep track of justice and weigh the scales. You've got another goddess over here who's going to eat you alive if you didn't do it right. You've got another God who's going to help get you through. You've got another God who's going to sail you on the boat. You've got all these other gods that you've had to treat right or you wouldn't have had crops or you wouldn't have had blah, 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 blah. All of that, all of that idolatry, gone after Sinai. Gone by the revelation of God. Unfortunately, the people didn't listen to it. But the story at Sinai is worship the one true God, not the gods of our imagination. And the really sad, pathetic part is while Moses is getting this very revelation, the people get restless. And they go to Aaron and say, man, he's been gone forever. This is, this is outrageous. We've never gone this long without gods around us. You know, you've you got to give us a God, man. We've got to have a God. We're like defenseless out here. Give us a God. So Aaron gets gold from him and he fashions it and he makes a golden calf. And he says, hey, these will be your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, now that's something they could relate to because they worshipped calves, oxen, in Egypt. Oh, finally, we've got a God. These are the gods. I guess this is uh, more than one. And Moses comes down and Moses has received revelation. And he's so ticked off over this, he throws the tablets down and breaks them. The Ten Commandments start out zooming in. I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image. That's a huge, game-changing deal. But it's rooted in Genesis chapter 1. Without Genesis chapter 1, the people are kind of like, what do you mean? You're the only God. It's kind of obvious. We've got the sun up there. Well, you got the moon. There's a Nile where we used to have food because that God took care of us. This is really good. This is what's unfolding. And when we read this with a 21st century Western mindset, we totally lose out on huge meaning of this. I mean, look at the idea. Pharaoh is a god? And Moses comes down and Moses declares to the people, all people are made in God's image, not just Pharaoh. In Genesis 1.26, And God said, let us make man in our image. And male and female, he created them in his image. And everyone descends from them. Everyone, every human being is made in the image of God. Everyone. You know, we don't have to have this picture of Pharaoh sitting on the goddess's lap, his mama, because Pharaoh's a mama's boy. And his mama is a goddess of Isis and she's the nurturer and she's the protector. And so Pharaoh is supposed to, as her son, invoke Isis and protect the land of Egypt. That's why he goes out with the armies. He's God. He's supposed to protect the land. That's his job. That's why when Moses comes in and totally disrupts everything by the power of Yahweh... Pharaoh is shown to be a denuded, stripped king with no clothes on. He is not a god. 
He cannot stop those people from leaving. He drives them out, and what's worse, everybody wants them to go so bad, they give them a bunch of their booty, their treasure. They pl- the Israelites plunder the Egyptians. I mean, the, the, the right way to see this is to fear and to respect the true God. Not just some powerless fake. Oh, Pharaoh, you know, oh, I got my head clear. I can't believe I've been in a fog. I let Moses do this to me. He pulled this hocus pocus on me. And, and get the armies. We're going out to get them. We're going to show them who's God. And the armies of Pharaoh corral. And they go after the Israelites who have been led by God to this sea of reeds in front of them. It's like, well, now we're in trouble. Here comes the most powerful army in the world with a really ticked-off God at its head. And God says, Moses... Let's do this in style. So mom had a party at the house, at our house yesterday morning. Uh, Becky and mom uh, put together this party. It was a great party. And I was meeting some of the people there. They were friends of mom's. And this one fellow said to me, he said, well, I may come to your class one day. I've heard about it. And I said, we would just be honored to. He said, well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian. I said, uh, well, uh, we can fix that. Uh, I, didn't. I said, tell me what kind of faith you hold. He says, well, I'm Jewish, but I don't believe any of that stuff either. And I said, really? And he says, oh, yeah, parting the Red Sea? Like, that doesn't happen. I was like, true, unless... You're God, then it's like no big deal. But just and 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 the the point of the story, the whole the whole point of the events is that we should fear and respect God. He's not some powerless fake. People feared Pharaoh. The Israelites are still fearing Pharaoh when they're surrounded. And the Red Sea blocks their escape. We have no reason to fear anyone other than the Lord God. We have no reason to fear anyone, anything. If you've got something in your life that you're scared about, ask yourself this question. I wonder if God's scared about this. And as long as the answer is no, then all you need to do is be walking with God and you can be confident He's going to walk through it with you. You just stay with Him. You fear and respect the God. He created this. The the, the sun is not a God. The waters are not a God. The wind is not a God. Though God is a spirit. Here's the way Paul said it. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and falcon head and ibis head birds and old dog head and crocodile face. All of the birds and the animals and the creeping things. That's what God said to Moses he made. And God made the air, the birds to fly in the air. And God made the fish to swim in the sea. And God made the cattle and the creepy things on the earth. Those aren't gods. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the created ones, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
That's what God's trying to say. Now, there's a lot more to think about, but I'm out of time. So, and, and I regret I can't stand up here and talk to you guys, but I have a choice. I can talk to you after class or I can have dinner with my granddaughter tonight in Washington, D.C. So if you want to watch me walk out that door, just keep your eyes on me because I'm going to walk fast. Okay? <laughs> so here's the deal. I'm going to put the Book of the Dead down here. Brent and Mark are going to help me and Janet's going to get it when it's all done. She can stay here. Um, but, but let me give you some points for home before I do. God bless you guys. I look forward to wrapping this series up next week. Here is our take action steps now. There is one God. That's all. He's in the beginning. In the beginning, God. Bareshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. That's it. That means no idols. God's the one who created. Everything else is a creation. It's a creature. He is creator. Don't put your trust in anything except the Lord. And then final point, we bear God's image. Now, I made this a final point a couple weeks ago, and I preached hard at the last minute about how important it is we treat other people that way. I don't want to take away from that. Everybody's in God's image, and we treat them with love, respect, and dignity, regardless of the country in which their citizenship is, regardless of what the color of their skin, regardless of which social circles they run in, regardless of whether they're nice or mean, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of how much education they have, regardless, 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 regardless. We treat everyone with respect and we show that we honor the God who created them in His image by how we treat them. But... This emphasis on it this week is a little bit different. The emphasis this week is you and I make it individual. I was made in God's image and so were you. We're not God. We're made in His image. We're made to walk with Him. We're made to understand Him in some ways. Not fully, but still to understand Him. And if we're not taking serious that we run the risk of elevating ourselves to God or denigrating ourselves to something unworthy of God's love. Neither of those are true. We are worthy of God's love because He made us that way and that's who He is. But we are not God's. Don't start putting your faith and confidence in anything other than the one God. Can I bless you in Jesus' name? And I'll see you next week by God's grace. Father, I ask your blessings on all who hear this message. That you will convict us by your Holy Spirit to understand and appreciate and, and, and reverence in awe and, and holy worship who you are. <laughs> Excuse me, Lord. And Father, would you please bless my friends with a realization of the value and dignity that they have before you because of what you've made in them and how you will take them and grow them into something that's perfectly in your plan. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.